This episode of The Energy Pipeline is sponsored by Caterpillar Oil & Gas. Since the 1930s, Caterpillar has manufactured engines for drilling, production, well service, and gas compression. With more than 2,100 dealer locations worldwide, Caterpillar offers customers a dedicated support team to assist with their premier power solutions. The Energy Pipeline is your lifeline to all things oil and gas, to drill down deep into the issues impacting our industry. From the frack site to the future of sustainability, hear more about industry issues, tools, and resources to streamline and modernize the future of oil and gas. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Energy Pipeline. Today, I'm here with John Ely, an industry pioneer in the world of fracking. John, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. John, we have done a couple episodes discussing fracking, the last one being what is fracking and getting the education on how it physically works. But today we're more interested in the history. So could you share a little bit of your insights on the early days of fracking and what it was like and what you remember from the beginning? Okay. I obviously wasn't here at the absolute beginning because I was about four (laughs) years old when that started. Uh, very interesting for me from the standpoint I'm, I'm uh, have, I have some awards in engineering but I'm actually a chemist and I develop fracturing fluids working for Halliburton so I was involved very deeply in fracturing uh, and when actually some of the larger treatments started going forward uh, Initial motivations about its development was need ways to increase productivity of reservoirs. In fact, in reality, um, most of the fracturing treatments that were conducted right into the 60s were just damage removal treatments where we damaged and drilling and we were dealing with higher permeability reservoirs. As you know, today is a totally different game and we need to need a huge amount of surface area and much, much larger treatments. Uh, but the initial development was what can we do to enhance the production and get rid of the damage towards that well more. And so when, I guess, when did your career start in it? You said about 20-something years after fracking began is when you actually got into it, because I guess you had to grow up and go to college and get your education <laughs> first. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I sure did. Uh, I was very fortunate in that I worked in fracturing research for Halliburton and was uh, the inventor of the first high-temperature fracturing fluid and much larger treatments in the stimulation of uh, deep high temperature reservoirs in South Texas and other areas of the country. Uh, uh, far as challenges and breakthrough moments is, is when we actually started doing some of the much larger treatments. Uh, mm-hmm. This was late 60s, we were treating, the industry was confused, a little not confused, but this ultra conservative from the standpoint of completions and we're using uh, tubing completions resulted in very high pressures, uh, but we had some specialized equipment that was developed called intensifier pumps and treated many wells, well over 15,000 psi, uh, 
but we're able to simulate wells and move forward uh, in understanding, not only understanding, but developing technology that allow us to make fracturing work and work well. That's cool. And it's cool that you are a part of the innovation you said with the high temperature fluid. What was it like before you came up with that versus after like what changed well what was was actually being done in some of the deeper high temperature wells was was basically something close to slick water treatments that they're done today they were basically just a cool mines and pump below concentration of sands at high pressures uh, what we did was develop a temperature stable viscous fluid that would mm -hmm. uh, allow us to stimulate uh, much better the um, the reservoirs and we published some, some good papers about the stimulation that occurred. These were not the ultra-tight reservoirs but they could be very economically stimulated utilizing uh, the fluid was called high frac and it was uh, a primary secondary fluid that was used for seven or eight years before we got into some of the uh, Crosslink fluids and and little little lower price operations. That's cool because it's like you were on such a granular level of improving the process, and sometimes we look at it as such a macro uh, type of operation. But it's it's very cool to think that even down to the fluids that you guys were developing better ways to go about it. And I imagine to this day, it's probably changed even more. Are you aware of like, has there been more changes to the fluids and like what's different up until today? Yeah, dramatic changes in the fluids. <laughs> uh, basically, we went through a, a stage, I mentioned earlier, the intensifier high pressure pumps and then the industry kind of had a, a, a moment of understanding and realized we could go down uh, safely down casing and we were able to treat a little lower pressure or still high but it made the we we ended up getting rid of the of the very high pressure pumps and have the conventional pumps that we've got today um, some of the things that evolved when i first started in fracturing uh, we were all standing outside we didn't have these control vans and computers uh, a lot of the signals, some of them were actually hand signals that controlled jobs and created some dangerous situations. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and it, you know, you wore a hard hat, so if it hailed, you protected your head and, and that and yeah. you were out in the weather and so forth. But that's moved forward. Uh, we had people standing on trucks and running equipment, and of course that doesn't go on today. We Instead of having one person per truck, we can we can run 25 trucks with one person with a, with a mouse. So we're moving along as far as technology and development. Uh, what's happened over the years is we've seen uh, better high-pressure pumping equipment going from 750 horsepower to 2,000, and now with some of the newer equipment we've got five or six thousand horsepower if not more available with the electric and the uh, uh, new pumps that are out in the industry today do you ever miss the days where like 
it was kind of chaotic and it did take more people to do things and it was a little more uncertain and less high tech and you're kind of just cowboying it. Do you ever miss that or uh, are you appreciative of the technology more so? Oh, I, I think I, I miss it and yet there's a lot of safety considerations that they <laughs> account when you when you're out in the open air, you're you're kind of open to, to serious problems and moving around. We've moved forward in safety and, and ecological and environmental standpoint in fracturing. I think it's been a great improvement in our industry. Yeah, absolutely. Safety and environment are huge, huge topics today. Um, I, I guess you mentioned earlier about when it was first coming out with fracturing and your early days in your career that there was a very conservative approach around doing it. Do you remember kind of the public perception of how people felt about fracking then? And have you noticed it change over the years or any significant points where it was either really well-liked or disliked? Well, it, it is interesting. Uh, I would like to think until we got into the the 2000s for sure, and not mm -hmm. before that, we were kind of below the headlights. We were conducting uh, very large treatments and moving forward in technology, but nobody knew anything about us. They didn't know what, what we were doing and so forth. And of course, what we were doing was, was supplying oil and gas, and and uh, when, when we came out with the uh, that uh, dumb movie, Gasland, and then some yep. of the experts in the industry, uh, uh, Matt Damon and Yoko Ono, who don't even know how to spell <laughs> fracturing, uh, badmouth us and put us down. In reality, though, uh, some of some of the criticism has been somewhat well taken, and that we do take more consideration and care for the environment and take care of our people. I think the vast majority of people uh, took care of their equipment and took care of the people and, and didn't pollute and do the things that we were accused of in the industry. I know Gasland said there yeah. were five or six hundred chemicals that were polluting the environment and of course we never used um, more than eight or ten and most of them are things that are used in ice cream and other things anyway. Oh, man. Well, I guess we can't say for sure whether or not ice cream's good for you. But if, if we can eat it, it must not be too bad, right? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, that's, that's so cool that like you've lived through so much of the change. And it's interesting to think that, like you said, up until the 2000s, that you guys kind of flew under the radar and you were just doing your thing, making advancements. And now in the, you know, 2020s, like there's no such thing as anyone flying under the radar anymore. Like everything is blown up and everyone knows everything because of social media. Um, at your company, has that affected things at all? Just kind of, you know, having to, have more of a public presence and you know take more attention to how the public perceives you well i think that's very important uh, education of education of people i've traveled worldwide and and certainly more so domestically and met up with a lot of people who simply it's an idea how what we're doing and why we're doing it. and we were really polluting uh, the aquifers and and we weren't blowing up and causing all of the the earthquakes and deal that might have no, no, the water injection and so forth and fracturing. 
But yes, it's important that we explain to people what we're doing, how we're doing it, and to do it safely and properly. Yeah, absolutely. So more back on the um, the fracking itself, I had a question here wondering if you could provide some specific examples of projects or regions where fracking is very crucial in unlocking the um, substantial oil and gas reserves. So I, I guess like where it plays really well. Well, the obvious advantage of today, and this started 15, 20 years ago, was the uh, stimulation that George Mitchell got involved with the Barnett, and, and which is stimulation of very low permeability uh, nanodarcy type rock that uh, we call shale. Um, this is this is uh, something that changed uh, our whole business and, and, and it evolved into probably 70, 80 percent of the work that goes in our industry of these large thick water fracks with a very large volumes of, of provent and, and uh, fluid. Uh, basically, we've gone mostly horizontal uh, to give more surface area, which is what fracturing is about. It's opening up the rock to create massive amounts of surface area. And we'll be able to do that with relatively inexpensive provent, where we've gotten away from some of the stronger provents because of the lack of crushing that goes on in the very low permeability rock. But the areas that that has occurred, uh, you could say the Barnett in North Central Texas, you can say the Oklahoma and the Woodford and the uh, Scoop Stack Rill, the, the area in, in uh, Wyoming and so forth with the Bakken. You can go into the Wolf Camp uh, area in, in West Texas, the Eagleford in South Texas. You can, you, you can go on and on. There's there's shale plays and low permeability reservoirs. It's greatly benefited and would not be viable at all without the hydraulic fracturing techniques that we have. That's crazy to think that like if we didn't figure out how to do that, we would just have all this oil and gas just sitting there untouched or that or it would take us a bunch of vertical wells to just like pop around and get them all, which that would not be efficient. Um, Ever since I've been in the industry, which has only been, gosh, like seven or eight years ago when I had my first internship, obviously horizontal drilling was very popular. Then unconventional wells had already taken off. Do you remember when unconventional drilling came into the scene and how that affected fracking? <laughs> well, if we did, we define it. There's two ways. People call it called tight sand. Some of the stuff like Cotton Valley in East Texas. These were microdarcy mm -hmm. firm, and we had what we call massive hydraulic fracturing treatments, which really don't match up to some of the size that goes on today. But most of that was vertical completions. Mm -hmm. A lot of sand, a lot of fluids, a lot of conventional gel systems used. And we moved from, from that into the nanodarcy, the, the six-figure low, low permeability rock, and by using large volumes of fluid and large amounts of provence, we're able to stimulate and come up with some wells which are just awesome, three or 4,000 barrels a day uh, that can pay out. Uh, we couldn't do that. We couldn't even approach that with, with uh, the typical stimulation treatments we were using back even even in the late 90s 
we tried for years and years to simulate the wolf camp in West Texas, and and uh, it was not much fun. We couldn't understand, but uh, we do now. We do understand that hydraulic fracturing properly applied gives us uh, the ability to draw oil and gas from extremely tight, uh, low permeability, hard rock wells. That's really cool. I just, I love the technology behind it and it, it sounds so cool in theory, but then when you go out to like an actual frac site or like a drilling rig, or you're seeing this stuff happen, you realize like how intense it actually is because in conversation or on paper, you're like, yeah, we're poking holes in the ground, getting fluid coming out. Like that sounds so fun and cute. And then you go there and you're like, this is really intense. Like this is actually crazy. And I, I think it's really fun to, that you got to actually experience this and see from when it was a bit more chaotic to now where we're just so precise in the way we do things. And I think it's going to be really cool over the next few years to see how it evolves even more. Um, I guess the question I would have would be what lessons have you learned from your past experiences through, you know, all the hydraulic fracturing that you've kind of had to learn the hard way or just like interesting lessons you've learned throughout these times? Well, for myself personally, I was lucky enough to be involved with some early gas research work that was done and a lot of it initially was in East Texas and we were all over the country and we used a lot of diagnostics and technology to understand, uh, for instance, there's not any confined, not any principal member of confined hydraulic fractures, that fractures grow up and down. And they're very complex. They aren't that pretty picture that you see in magazines of a single fracture portrayed yeah. in even, even with conventional type completions. Uh, we, we've come, uh, and, and you said something earlier, most of my learning was hands-on. I learned mm -hmm. about uh, limited entry and understanding how to perforate wells from the early days with shell oil down in the McAllen Ranch and then and took that technology and, and used it in others like the Piaz Basin and, and actually used it over in Europe and, and the Middle East. Uh, the uh, there's been so many changes in so much direction. The, the, the slick water thing was a vast change for our industry. Like today, no, not many source companies really understand or are totally involved with conventional high viscosity fracturing fluids. It's difficult for us to, to get people who can do this. And there still is some application for permeable reservoirs that need to be fracked with high concentrations of high strength propane. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's that's low end. What we're talking about now is basically water, uh, very small sand, 100 mesh, 40, 70, some cents, and large volumes. And that large volumes is to create uh, complexity and to create massive amounts of surface area to produce, to be able to produce oil and gas at high rates. That's awesome. It's it's crazy how much things can change over a certain period of time. Uh, the the company that you run now, what is it that you guys do in relation to fracking and drilling, and like how are you using your chemist background in your company today? Okay, well, over the years, basically, uh, we started out we just oversaw oversaw 
the service companies like Halliburton and Schlumberger and BJ and the Western Company, and we'd go out and be hired by an operator to be assured that the jobs were done correctly. Now, at the time, we developed a better understanding of design and implementation. Uh, we actually have means to design and optimize the size of even slip water treatments or conventional treatments to get the optimum amount of production or get, get us to where uh, that present value isn't unrealistic because we ran the giant treatment in, in a, in a per, high permeability well. But it's, uh, what, our, what our company does primarily is to oversee uh, not only make sure everything's done right, but at the same time to make absolutely certain that we're using the very best technology, the very best uh, techniques to optimize the treatment and to stimulate the reservoirs as best as possible. Sounds like a very big responsibility that you guys have. Uh, a topic that comes up constantly, not only in this podcast, but in the industry as a whole, is safety and environmental concerns. In these operations, how are you guys addressing those in the way that you help your customers? Well, I just tell just a quick story about the early days of, of fracturing with slip water in, in Oklahoma. Uh, they were, one, one company we worked for was carrying 60 to 80 500 barrel frack tanks in Sacramento location and gathering up water. And of course, they made it was very difficult. Uh, it gets cold in the winter, even in Oklahoma, and you're freezing and all the problems. And somebody got smart and went to the local farmers, even those that didn't have the loyalty, and said, What if we dug you a great big pond and gave it to you? And what if we drilled you a well? and filled it with water. And then we will pump the water out of it and then we refill it with a well. And of course the sales point for particularly the non-royalty owners is they offered us talking with fish. But we learned how to do environmentally proper techniques that simplified the operation and, and optimized the kind of treatments. We're learning how to do this everywhere. It's, it's difficult. There are areas where it's very difficult to get uh, proper amount of water. We're using recycled water every possibility. And as far as from a chemist standpoint, uh, you actually can utilize very high salinity uh, water because of the various technology that's available from the standpoint of uh, turbine suppression or friction reducers. Uh, myocides, uh, surfactants if necessary, and so forth. Uh, but from an environmental standpoint, we I think there's a general big-time realization that, you know, we needed to leave a location cleaner than we got there. We need to, <laughs> yeah. we, we need to make sure that there are no leaks. We make sure there's no gas escaping or, or the things that have happened, uh, sadly, because of poor operation. Now, there are lots of good people doing lots of good work, but there also are sometimes people who don't stay on top of the business. And, and I think ha having people oversee you and be sure you're doing right is not a bad thing. 
you know, we used to fuss when they come on locations and maybe the service had to be mad. What are you doing out here? And I said, I'm just out here to make sure the job is done right. That was early days. And, and I said, you don't want the job done right? And, well, we know how. And that's well, everybody does. But, but we've been hired to be sure it's done right. And if you have some technology, you understand, that's where we benefited the background in chemistry. I was able, in my, in my time, to put together the product lines for three different service companies because of the knowledge in chemistry that there was there. It was uh, very interesting, and sometimes you could be a benefit to the service company because they didn't have somebody there locally that knew what was going on, as cross-linkers and additives and breakers and so forth. Yeah, that sounds like you guys come in there, and it's interesting where they can look at you and be like, oh, man, why are they here? But then end up actually appreciating it, because you're right, there's so much room for humans to do good, but then human error, man, we, we mess up a lot as people. So it's it's wonderful to have like an extra layer of checks and balances there. Um, now that we're getting closer to the end, I have to ask the question, which is, you've seen so much of the you know fracking industry change. What do you think is coming next? Like, how do you think it will continue to evolve? Do you have any guesses on the next technology or what you think maybe needs to evolve a little bit more? I think uh, I think there is technology and understanding. You know, God punishes us frack people. He could, he introduces something called heterogeneity, and we sometimes drill a well, and we really make a good well, and then we decide that the, the that type of technique needs to be done throughout the field. And maybe it was a good well because it was a good part of the field, a good part mm -hmm. of the reservoir. And that's some of the biggest mistakes I see happening. We we could give an example of the Austin Chalk, which has been fracked about every way possible. But there was a time when there was probably 20 frack crews running, running 40-pound crossing gel with 300,000 pounds of sand because that worked on the first well. We know today that that was the wrong technique to be using, and, and but we 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 have to kind of learn as we go. But uh, it's been a, been a very interesting uh, lifespan that I've had in working in the industry, because we have through various techniques learned technology and taken advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like you said, it's kind of like trial and error, but on such a large scale that it's it's more than just doing a lab experiment. Like you are on land, you have these millions of dollars that you guys spend to do each well. Um, so it's, it's a lot of pressure to experiment like that. But now finally, I have to ask, what, what piece of advice would you give to somebody new coming into this industry? And what are your final thoughts? Okay. Well, we're not done. Uh, regardless of what politicians are saying or, or we're going to get rid of uh, all the hydrocarbons in the world has been a disaster. It's very important that you truly understand what's going on. It's very important, and this is my big pet peeve in the world, is I hate to make the same mistakes over again. We have the same problem as some people who don't record their history and record what they've done. 
I have people come in, they've got something exciting, oh my God, Mr. Ely, we can run alcohol and frack our wells. I said, well, that's amazing. <laughs> it's been tried about six times, it failed every time. Or we can use oil because it's compatible. Well, we need to think about that and need to understand what's going on and what we've learned. If we, if we can get technically, have a technical understanding of what's going on, uh, it's extremely important. Uh, you can't just go out and be the meanest guy on the block and, and hit, hit the hammer harder. In reality, we're now in where technological capabilities lie. Now, slick water wasn't a giant technological development, but it took some people understanding what's going on uh, to make it work. John, it's been such an honor to talk with somebody today who knows so much and has lived through just so much change throughout this industry. And I I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Thank you so much. And guys, thank you so much for listening to the Energy Pipeline. We will see you next week. Come back next week for another episode of the Energy Pipeline, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.